Hello, welcome to the Fit Finance Session latest edition. Uh, my name is Charlie Redding, I'm the founder of Efficient Portfolio, and I'm joined today by Tim, Tom, and Henry, all of which are financial planners at Efficient Portfolio. Now today we're going to talk about something we have absolutely no idea on. I'm not quite sure how we're going to get through a, uh, a whole podcast on the word Brexit uh, and the implications of things like Brexit on your finances because actually we're right in the heart of not knowing what's going to happen with Brexit. But that in, in a way is the point of talking about it at the moment with the impact of these sort of unknown events on your money. So we're, we're recording this uh, in the middle of March, uh, it's on the 18th of March, so we've just had Theresa Ray's second attempt to get the deal through uh, fail, uh, so we really have no idea at the moment whether we're going to end up with uh, taking the deal that's on the table, because apparently we're going to get asked a third time, you know, it's like, let's keep, if we keep asking, maybe we'll get the right answer eventually. Um, maybe we will never end up exiting uh, Europe at all. Or, and it looks unlikely at the moment, but possibly we'll, we'll crash out of Europe without a deal. We really don't know where we're at, uh, but the point is, should that uh, mean that you change the approach to, uh, to how you deal with your money? So let's, let's kick off uh, and sort of start saying, well, okay, Henry, maybe, can you tell me what you think is likely to happen to investments with those three different scenarios, you know, I mean, or, and I'm not asking you for prediction. I'm asking you to tell me because I know that's a big ask. But what are the implications <laughs> to our investments of each of those three scenarios? A no deal, deal, and no Brexit at all. Given everything that's gone on, what are your thoughts on that? Well, without uh, <laughs> what I don't know, I, what I do, what I do, sort of have an idea with. Uh, overarching it all, there's going to be volatility while people don't really know what's going to happen. What do you mean by so, volatility? So what I mean by that is, that is, is, is the markets will bounce up and they'll bounce down. And you've seen that quite a bit recently, that one piece of good news comes out and the markets all suddenly rocket up by a couple of percent in a day. And then the next day, the vote doesn't go through and it becomes more uncertainty and people think we're going to crash out without a deal and then all of a sudden the markets plummet a bit. Having said that, I mean, the markets have done great guns since whatever it was, November, December, I think they're probably up 15% or so. So, so generally, the market seems to be fairly positive. But in answer to, to your specific question, I suppose, if we crash out, I don't think there's anyone who would disagree with me and say that the markets will fall badly. Um, Business won't like it. They won't know what the World Trade Organization rules will have for them. It'll be it'll be a mess. Um, I think the other two ways um, sticking with Europe, certainly within the city, I would imagine that most businessmen in the city still probably quite keen that they got to remain in Europe rather than get pushed out, um, or just having a fairly orderly Brexit, perhaps under under old Theresa May's. Um, current plan or whether or not that gets moved or softened if perhaps there's a Labour a, a Labour coalition that comes in. I should think the markets actually will take that quite kindly and quite positively and they will they will over the longer term start to start to, to rise. Um, and we should you know as as people become more confident and there's less uncertainty in the market. Okay. Brilliant. Uh, well and Tom uh, so Henry seems pretty confident that if we get out, if we crash out of Europe 
um, then the markets will fall. And obviously, look, looks like we're less likely to crush out of Europe with no deal now, but that doesn't mean it can't happen by mistake. Uh, but is it certain that markets will fall? Because my understanding is that sterling uh, would weaken and that can complicate things. So can you explain a bit more about that? Yeah, so I think um, I'm looking at not just this event, but any event. If you go back to 2016, where most people would have predicted the vote to go the other way, um, markets rose a fair bit in, in the second half of that year. And that's because sterling weakens, it makes UK goods and services more attractive and therefore generates more um, flows in, in, into the UK and, and pumps the markets. I think also the FTSE 100 in particular, 70% of earnings are from outside of the UK. So there is some resilience there. I think the main issue is this, is the disruption in terms of trade and how that happens. So it's it's short term, but if you go back and look over all the various events over um, the last few years, Trump, Marine Le Pen, all, all these other uh, uh, events, there's always short-term cautiousness. A lot of these events are built into the market already. You've seen the market rise slightly on the fact that um, there's potentially not a no-deal outcome. Um, you can never predict which way it goes. As Henry rightly said, there tends to be more volatility. But what's happening over a two, three, six-month period is less of an issue to our clients. It's, it's more about guiding them over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Absolutely, I, I couldn't agree with that more. Uh, and, I, and I suppose that the, the the key to that is that you're not trying to make short term gains. You're not trying to, you know, you need to almost bury your head in the sand a little bit with regards to short term volatility because this is the long game that we're talking about with with regards to investing. Um, what Tim could you do with regards to your investments to try? Because clearly we don't know what's going to happen, do we? We don't know. Well, there's really three routes we could stand up going. And on each of those three routes, there's a whole load of variations that we, we don't know whether it would be positive for our money or negative. So what can people do with regards to their investments to help protect them against the, what, the outcomes? It really boils down to diversification. So um, I think for, for the layman to understand quite simply, I think everybody would appreciate that if all of your money was invested in the UK at the moment, you without a doubt would have had a very turbulent time of things. Uh, whereas, quite simply, you know, if, if more of your money was spread across both you know the globe, also different types of assets, not just equities or, or company company shares, that sort of thing, um, you know, in bonds and um, uh, and alternative types of, uh, of investments and property and things like that, simply by the diversifying your money uh, across the different areas. And the research shows that eighty to eighty five percent of any portfolio return uh, comes from getting that split of assets right. Um, and that that is really the, the main driver to be protecting, be protecting money. Brilliant. So, so what would be the key asset class? So, what Tim's talking about there, the split of the different investments, is known as the asset allocation. Henry, what would be the key asset classes that you'd expect to see in a portfolio to deliver a diversified pr- approach that, that that Tim was referencing? Uh, so, typically, I suppose. You'd have a core of perhaps four different main asset classes. So you would have cash within most portfolios and certainly within um, more cautious portfolios that cash might create quite a significant proportion of the, the portfolio. It's going to deliver 
stable, steady returns, just providing you with interest. Um, moving up the risk scale, I suppose you would then move into bonds of one shape or another. So that's a bond essentially is just a loan and the loan delivers an interest. And if that's a government loan, the rate of interest is typically lower, although in times of Grexit all those years ago, the, the yield was that much higher. And then you would have corporate bonds, which typically would pay a slightly higher coupon or yield or interest rate. And then you'd have junk bonds, which are smaller companies, less reliable, and they're paying even higher rates still. Um, beyond that, you would have equities, so your stocks and shares. And whether that be the UK equity market or a more global mixture of equities from America or Europe or, or the emerging markets. And then I suppose the fourth category would be the others or miscellaneous or, or, or what have you, which would include asset classes such as property, um, commercial property rather than residential in a, in a typical portfolio, or commodities such as gold and, and oil. And does anybody have any views on... On, I mean, obviously, we've talked about equities with with regards to Brexit, but uh, how are any of these other asset classes going to be impacted by Brexit? Uh, I think bonds is a is an interesting one. Interest rates are at their lowest point to, uh, that we've seen over the last forty years. Um, but if you start looking at the US, rates are at two to two and a half percent, roughly on uh, government bonds. Um, Whilst we go through Brexit, I think uh, the Bank of England is holding back some wiggle room. I think long-term trends will see rates start to rise. Um, that can affect bonds negatively, um, but also you'll be able to get more return from the issuing bonds from the government. So uh, it's, the bonds are really just the stabiliser on the bike. Equities drive the long-term growth of the portfolio. If we want to reduce volatility, we generally use bonds to, to reduce that and make the ride smoother. Um, but they can be a good asset class in, in themselves. I think particularly gilts have done fantastically well post the, um, post the vote. Whether they continue to do so, again, is another thing. But again, lots of clients coming in um, at the moment tend to have lots of exposure to gilts if they're in a lifestyle pension or something like that. Sometimes it's about taking off the risk off the table they've had a good return and taking that risk off the table arguably just the same in having lots of UK equity exposure it's about being diverse and and in terms of the other asset classes so if we've got the if the if the um, if the bonds are the stabiliser to stick with your cycling theme uh, if the, maybe property is the, is the bell uh, on the bike uh, has anybody got any views as to whether that's going to be ringing in a good way or a bad way with regards to Brexit? I think the um, property is an interesting one because if you, if, you, if you say we have a bad Brexit and we come out and, and sterling crashes on the back of it, which is generally accepted, sterling would get weaker, people would be able to buy more sterlings for their dollars or their dirhams. Actually, you see, that could promote commercial property because then the sovereign funds from outside of the UK start buying up these office blocks in London because all of a sudden they're 20% cheaper than they were the day before. So that could actually promote, promote, promote capital growth within those office blocks. The trouble is that some of the companies operating from within those office blocks wouldn't be doing so well. So they might stop paying their rent. So you see it's a kind of... It, 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 with one, one half of it you win and the other half you lose. And of course the flip side of that's exactly the same. So if we have a 
decent Brexit, everything goes as we hope it will go, then of course the companies working within them carry on trading, their profits continue to grow and there's no risk to, to the rental returns. But actually, of course, you get no outside investment into the properties and the growth. And that the, 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 the property growth would probably be driven more internally by by pension funds and people like that buying the properties and helping them to move up. Um, so it'd be very interesting, I think, on the commercial property. Yeah, you just don't, you just don't know which way it's going to go. And I think, actually, to a large extent, you don't know which way it's going to go from any of the asset classes, really, do you? Which is why the whole diversification is such an important factor, isn't it? Well, and of course, with most of those assets, well, not most of those asset classes, but your, your commodities, your gold, your oil, your overseas stocks and shares are totally unlinked to Brexit in every way, right? America doesn't care about Brexit, really. They might say a few words. Some of the Europeans don't really... They make words and they don't want us to Brexit, but it doesn't affect BMW share price. And the emerging markets have absolutely nothing to do with Brexit. Um, so so that's totally diverse and not linked in any way at all. Yeah. Uh, I, think it's, I think it's interesting. And I think uh, the, the whole point is that we don't know which way it's going to go on from a political point of view, but also the market's reactions to those those political events, and it isn't always the same. You know, whether it's a normal election, whether it's um, you know whether it's Brexit, it doesn't really matter. We don't know what's going to happen. So therefore, having a diversified approach is the way of hedging your bets. It's the way of saying, well, okay, if the markets suddenly do really well, we're riding on the back of it because that might you might get three years growth all in six months uh, in a six month period. So you've got to be there. To be partaking, but equally you've got to protect the money in case the, the markets are falling. Um, so it, it it is challenging, and that's why diversification is so important. Um, but you know you could go off and build a nicely diversified <laughs> portfolio, and let's say you'd got you know forty percent in equities and forty percent in bonds and twenty percent in other stuff, and you'd set this up five years ago. Uh, so is that still as good today as it would have been? You know, as it would be um, five years ago, or would things have changed? So, Tim, you know, if you built that portfolio five years ago and then just left it, is it still right and fit for purpose today, or do you need to have adapted and changed anything um, to uh, to keep it fit for purpose? Yeah. Well, generally, what we tend to see is well, there's normally a linear relationship between risk and return that you expect within a portfolio. So, the higher risk assets that you have in a portfolio, you know, the overseas equities commodities, property, and, and so on, uh, they tend to do better than the lower risk stabilizers about like the bond skills, etc. So without keeping on top of it, what we, what we tend to see over time is that the higher risk assets do better um, than the lower risk ones, which then actually in turn means that more of the portfolio ends up being sort of swollen in that area and, and more of your money is taken up with higher risk stuff, if you like, than the lower risk parts. Um, so all, you know, all clients that are invested through us go through a, a process called rebalancing, whereby it's about actually spreading spreading the load, as it were, selling some assets from, from the parts that have done well, normally the higher risk ones over a lot of the longer term, and then putting them back into the lower risk ones and kind of making sure that all the buckets are level uh, to, to the right um, percentages, if you like, the amount of risk which somebody's um, happy to take. Without doing so, what tends to happen is that the client ends up you know, taking much more risk than they're comfortable with without going through that process. And it sounds slightly counterintuitive, doesn't it, to to sell the things that are doing well and buy more of the things that aren't doing well. So over the long run, does rebalancing 
actually reduce your returns or does it increase your returns? No, it's shown to increase your returns. It depends, there's different strategies of doing it. Um, some people do it peri- periodically, every quarter perhaps, um, or half yearly, one yearly. Um, or there's a process called trigger rebalancing where it's, it's done on a percentage basis. So there's a, there's a grace period, if you like, either side of what is suitable or, or the client's comfortable with. And then there's systems in place to, to you know, as and when the, those particular asset classes swell or, or, uh, or shrink below those parts, then the system triggers it and um, goes and, and does what it needs to do. That's, that has tended to, to show better results than, than quarterly or periodic uh, based solutions. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, yeah, it does. Well, I suppose the, the advantage of trigger, what's so, so good about trigger rebalancing is you're only doing it at the optimum times. So you might do it twice in a quarter and then not for a whole year, mm. but you know that you're doing it at the optimum times, which is why it enhances the, the actual in, in, you know, improvement in, in, in growth over mm. doing it, for example, quarterly. You know, some quarters it might be a, a pointless exercise, but you'll be paying potentially fees to do a rebalance that is unnecessary. And then other quarters, uh, you know, you might have wanted to do it more often. And, and mm. so, uh, yeah, yeah trigger rebalancing is... Is, is definitely a, a, the best approach that, that I'm aware of. Um, so I suppose before we kind of go on to some other areas that this could impact, um, there's a there's a point to say, well, are we trying to get, are we getting too caught up with what's going on with the investment markets on the short term? You know, are we trying to, you know, there's a saying that time in the market is better than time in the market. So are you really, you know, with Brexit and anything else like it, you know, elections or whatever, are we really just getting too caught up in the short term when really we should be just looking at the longer term? And I suppose there's a really interesting chart, isn't there, to do with um, patents granted. Um, I don't know if you want to explain what that chart tells us, Tom, in terms of how that relates to uh, the long term outlook of, of investment portfolios. Yeah, so I guess we get asked a lot, is now the time to be coming into the market? Should I hold off? Should I come in at another point in time? The reality is, like you were just saying, Charlie, markets can be volatile in the short term. We have to take a long-term view. Companies buy and sell goods which they sell in line with inflation. So if, if, if you're selling a good and ser- service, you're going to sell it at a price that is profitable for you. Therefore, if you're invested in equities, you're building in that inflation proofing over time. Markets over the long term tend to deliver because uh, there's growth, companies expand, um, and, and, and generally over a longer, say, 10-year rolling period, markets will always perform. You, you can't always say ever, uh, never ever, but generally speaking markets will deliver over time i think if you get too caught up in whether i should come in now prior to brexit or just after brexit um over the over the long term that's going to have less of an impact it's it really is time in the market we can make that ride a bit smoother and sort of ease you into it a little bit but really companies will will deliver over the time that's that's what they're designed to do they're designed to make profit and and, and grow things. Uh, bonds really are just used to stabilise that ride um, and to make it a bit easier. And the reason for it is, and I kind of mentioned the, the patent um, uh, chart. So there's a chart out there that shows the number of patents applied for and the number of patents granted over the last, I think it's 30 years. 
and how the world market has grown over that time. And there's a remarkably linear, uh, you know, there's a very strong correlation between those two. Uh, because the more things we invent and the more things we build, the more value we create and ultimately, therefore, long-term, the more value there is in these businesses. And as a result, if you're investing in them, the, the returns are likely to, uh, to, to increase uh, in line with that. That doesn't mean that we don't have catastrophes along the way, like the credit crunch and like the technology bubble. But ultimately, once those things iron out, we expect to see long-term growth. Now, with so let's push Brexit and the investments bit aside. What's Brexit um, or other political changes likely have likely to have any impact on things like uh, your pensions or uh, and other? you know, tax wrappers, you know, what what's likely to be the impact on those? Henry, have you got any thoughts on how other things might be impacted by what by, goes on? By, by Brexit? I think um, it's been notable that in the last few years, there haven't been huge numbers of changes. And if you look back, oh, I don't know, well, say to 2011, when after pensions were simplified, then on a kind of annual basis, pensions were steadily complexified, if that's not a word I've just made, I don't know what it is, but made more complicated. It's notable that since 2016, actually, there's been very little tinkering. The last budget was was, was a very quiet budget. We've just had the, the economic statement as well, and nothing new has been announced or suggested. It actually used to be twice a year, didn't it? Because yeah. twice a year we were having changes to the pension legislation. I mean, it was so difficult to keep up, wasn't it? It was. It was and yet we haven't had changes... Of, of any significance for, for two or three years. Before long, our clients will actually understand what a pension is and how they work. I mean, it's worrying. <laughs> It'll put us out of a job. Uh, <laughs> well, I have a feeling that we'll have some changes lined up, just, just in case that happens. <laughs> so, so it should be interesting. I mean, the, the hope, of course, is if, if Brexit happens, um, there will be a, an interim time, an interim period, over which um, our, our disassociation to Europe happens and that that tra- the trade agreements all that sort of stuff get um, sorted out but actually presumably then politicians start having a bit more time to go back and start tinkering with things that they possibly don't need to tinker with um, but it makes it look like they're doing something so perhaps then we start seeing some more of those pension changes coming through um, perhaps annual allowance um, flatline annual allowances or something along those lines so nothing I don't think um, Brexit per se creates changes, but I think once Brexit has happened, it provides time for politicians to then start thinking about other things other than Brexit. And I think Brexit, I suppose the other thing that I can think of is that, you know, Brexit, the way and the way that Brexit's been handled, it may end up leading us to a Labour government or a Labour coalition or something mm-hmm. similar. Who knows, a new, the new independence party. Uh, it could, we, there's no telling where we'll be because with any significant changes like Brexit, then you know that causes unrest. So, any ideas? What I mean, I know we've talked about in a different one what Brexit would, uh, sorry, what a Labour government would mean to uh, our investments and pensions. But just, just generally, you know, how how could that impact our money? Uh, I think generally speaking, if you listen to the rhetoric that uh, comes out of the Labour government, there will be less 
less money in your pocket, more money for the state. And arguably, it's making sure that really you've got a planner that can help guide you through uh, those changes because ultimately you want to make sure that most of the money that you're earning is in your pocket and uh, and not the government's. That doesn't mean trying to avoid tax and to a certain degree or doing anything uh, illegal. It's just a case of making sure you're always in the best position to take advantage of, of the scenarios that are out there. Um, that will always change. And I think uh, Charlie used the analogy of a, of a car Previously, the car you were driving in the 90s is very different to the cars we drive now. Um, if you're still driving and using different legislation in your pension, from a, which is something that was set up 10, 15, 20 years ago, it's probably not going to be in the best shape it could be or as, as adaptable as it could be to take into account of whatever's changing. I think that that's the key. There is always change. There's always uncertainty, whether it's trade wars, whether it's North Korea, whether it's Brexit, you know, the changes that are going to happen with, with the US over the, over the, um, over the coming you know, couple of years with you know, uh, another election there. Um, there's always uncertainty. There's always chaos in the market. There's always uncertainty with financial planning. There's always changes of legislation. And actually, the key to ensuring that your, um, your money continues to evolve with you is firstly, I think, having the properly diversified approach, but it's also about consistently revisiting it. And it's one of the biggest criticisms of our industry is that so many firms don't see their clients regularly and their, their financial planning gradually stagnate. Um, and they because certainly what we hear from clients is that many firms only really feel like they want to see their, their uh, the advisors only really want to see them when they think they can sell them something new. Um, but the key to doing this properly is is being part of an ongoing program where your financial planning evolves with you rather than gradually stagnating because you know that allows you to adapt to the changes in legislation as well as kind of keep an eye on what's going on out there in the markets because you know the US looks like it's in a good position at the moment but that's because it's done very well and you know, could the US be overpriced at the moment well possibly could the UK be under undervalued because of um, because of Brexit well probably as well so uh, I think it you know it's the key to managing this properly is to continually revisit it with your financial planner uh, so anybody got any other points that they want to throw in the mix with regards to Brexit or politics or anything else I think um, if you've got media shares I don't really know what the media will have to do post Brexit so they they <laughs> Be, sell all the <laughs> twiddling their thumbs with uh, nothing to talk about um, well on that happy note uh, the, on, on the prospect that the media might actually go into decline in, <laughs> if only uh, then uh, yes we'll, we'll wind it up but I hope you've enjoyed today's fit finance sessions uh, on Brexit and kind of similarly related topics uh, Next month, we're going to be dealing with the tax year ahead. So what should you be doing at the start of the tax year to get your finances in the best shape possible to maximise your bang for your buck, minimise tax and really get you to financial freedom that a little bit more quickly or maintaining financial freedom that little bit better if you're already there. So until the next time, uh, thank you very much for listening. and We look forward to speaking to you then. Thank you.